morning. So we've been talking about citizenship in the theme of this series, and it's probably pretty appropriate. We just had 4th of July. It's almost like that was planned. Now, I hope you all had a good 4th of July. Did everybody enjoy celebrating? Yeah? Did you do what is traditionally done for such a holiday, which is eating too much? It's like our second Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is designed for us to eat too much. Fourth of July is designed for us to remember that we like to eat too much and prepare for Thanksgiving. So you spend the day eating burgers, hot dogs, pie and cake, all vegan, of course. Um, and to do so because I want to celebrate my rights and freedoms as a citizen of this country, which is my right to gluttony, heart disease, and diabetes, apparently. Or in the immortal words of the great Wilfred Brimley, the diabetes. Now, because if there is a group of humans on the planet who are willing to butcher the language of any country, Americans will be a part of that. God bless the USA. I met an older lady once, and by older lady, I mean someone between the ages of 40 and 100, whose adult son, according to her, had problems with his kidneys and needed to get the dialysin regularly. And then she described a process that sounded much more like he was getting his oil changed than what was actually happens when you get kidney dialysis. Now, I would tell you what that process actually is, but I don't actually know for sure, and I didn't bother to look it up because I could not be bothered to do so, which sums up humanity relatively well in that we like to talk about things incorrectly and act like we know what we're talking about, even when we know we don't know what we're talking about, instead of actually putting ourselves out, doing our due diligence, in figuring it out because it's simply not a good use of our time. Why would I want to do that? Which brings us to citizenship, which as I've stated is the theme of this series. What is it really? Is it really just a boat made by a watch company? I'm waiting, there we go. Citizen is a watch company because you all knew that. Boats are ships, therefore, if they made a boat, it would be a citizen ship. Um, I may not be a father, but I reserve my right to make all the bad dad jokes I want, because I'm an American, and it is my right to do so. You're welcome. Now, what is it really? In a nutshell, the historical difference between someone who has full citizenship and someone with a lesser designation is the right to vote for a leader or to be voted in as that elected official. Depending on who you ask, you get different results, but that is generally how it is understood as a distinction. A citizen gets to make a vote of choice and is able to also be chosen because they belong completely. Their vote Voice and choice carries weight and power and allows them to be taken seriously and to take seriously the voice of others and to always be heard themselves. When we belong, we have the right to be heard. When we belong, 
Our voice matters. Citizenship is about belonging. When we belong, who we are and what we can contribute matters to those we belong to and to those we belong with. And this sounds great, right? We like the idea of that. We like how that sounds. Being part of something where you are equally valued. And while this is something we must absolutely strive for, I have to wonder if what we really want is something else. Because as stated, belonging gives us the right, the privilege, and the freedom to speak, which encourages us because we believe we will be heard. The question is, do we believe that our right to be heard equates with a right to be obeyed? Do we believe that those who are obligated to listen are also obligated to obey what has been spoken to them? Does my free will negate theirs? What we are talking about with citizenship and belonging isn't a simple statement just about our relationship <coughs> excuse me, to country, government, or even religion. It's about being a creation of the creator and the rights, freedoms, and privileges that come with it, which along with others could primarily be stated as the right to exercise free will. We always get to make a choice. What we don't always like is so does everybody else. I like when I get to choose, I don't like when everybody else gets to choose. We like other people's choices when they coincide with ours. We are less fond of them when they do not. Like my choice to not drive behind slow people versus slow people's consistent choice to drive in front of me, no matter what lane I choose, what road I take, or what time of day that it is. I generally feel like I'm in that scene from the Truman Show where the producers of the show got everybody to just be ready to pull out in front of his car every time he went somewhere to keep him from going where he wanted to go. It's a true story. An even better example maybe is that when any three people vote on any political issue that has existed between now and the beginning of reality. It never matches up. But remember the thing that distinguishes a citizen from a non-citizen, it's the vote. Even though we get all the rights, privileges, and freedoms, we chose to put someone in charge over us who can choose to act or not act as this being sees fit. This person exercises their free will to act or not act in a just or unjust fashion, and regardless of which, that decision can conflict and perhaps completely negate our free will decision. That being whether God or someone else in those instances has not taken away our free will, but perhaps he has acted or not acted in such a way as to make our ability to choose freely ineffective. This might make us feel like the dark side of free will is real and perhaps make us ask what the point of belonging really is if it doesn't confer an immediate benefit. And in those moments, it all seems unfair. Let's say you have two sports teams full of equally well-behaved kids who love Jesus and always do what's right. And <laughs> I almost said that with a straight face. Obviously, this is a very fictional example. 
And let's say both teams pray for victory in the name of Jesus and truly believe God will hear them and answer their prayer. Whose prayer does God answer? One team over the other? Neither. How about something a bit more real? What if two people get into a fight and in anger one kills the other? What if both of them were otherwise good, decent people who do not ordinarily behave in such ways? The family of both begged God to hear their cries and answer their prayers. One family wants justice for their murdered loved one. The other wants mercy for their guilty loved one. And when God, a God of mercy and justice, desires to show mercy and justice, how does he choose which to show? In every, if everyone in that situation belongs to God, is a citizen under God, what will the outcome be? And what does it mean if God acts in one direction over the other? Do we believe that citizenship and belonging equate to justice as we decide that it should? Do we believe that citizenship and belonging precludes a lack of suffering? When I was in residency, <clears throat> I had three units that I covered in the hospital. I had the emergency department, I had trauma ICU, and I had the trauma oncology unit. So one day, a nurse from oncology paged me. That's right, we carried pagers. We chaplains are so unintentionally hipster cool, we don't even know how cool we are, which makes us all super cool. This nurse paged me telling me that she had a 62-year-old female who had come into the hospital, not for oncology reasons, simply to have some routine tests ordered by her, her doctor, after which she found out she had cancer everywhere. She had less than six months to live. The nurse asked if I would come up because this lady was understandably not handling it well. One moment her life was perfectly fine, the next it was ending. She was having a very bad day. So I went up to the patient's room, expecting her to be upset about her diagnosis and cancer and the death that was to come. So I went into her room, I introduced myself, pulled a chair up next to her bed and held her hand for a while. She had this look of utter disbelief on her face. She was just shocked. She just stared forward, not knowing what to do or what to say or what was really happening to her. So I tried to validate where she was at, telling her how terrible this was, how unfair it was, and that my heart was broken for her. So she cried some, and finally told me that she was just so angry, which seemed reasonable to me, and I told her so. I said, this is completely reasonable, and it's more than okay to be angry at cancer. Who isn't? She looked at me and she said, no, that's not it. She said, I hate my husband. Which was not the answer I was expecting to come out of her mouth. But being the professional that I am, I collected myself, looked at her and eloquently said, oh? <laughs> to which over the next hour and a half, she proceeded to tell me 
how horrible of a human he was, how he had been abusive, how he had been <coughs> wasteful with time, with money, with her life, um, how she had to take care of him all the time and take care of his business and take care and protect the kids from him, how she had never been able to do anything in her life because he had wasted all of their money on alcoholism and extramarital affairs. She hated her life and every moment in it. She hadn't made any of the decisions she had wanted to, only the ones she felt she had to. Never being able to do or be what she wanted to be. She believed in God, but God had not rescued her or delivered her. Not in any way that she wanted. She had never known peace, never known contentment, and now that her life was over, she believed she never would. Her husband was horrible. He did whatever he wanted, cared nothing for the consequences. He seemed to be enjoying himself. She believed in doing right, and it had brought her a lifetime of suffering and misery right up till her death. In her eyes, her belonging in God was difficult to reconcile with her experiences in life. If we are being honest with ourselves, have we ever felt that way? Joseph belonged to God. Now, as a Hebrew, he didn't really have a country, per se, within which citizenship was an option, not at the time, but he was God's child and his citizen. Joseph had belonging in God's kingdom. God would bless Joseph with prophetic dreams. However, this privilege from God did not stop him from being sold as a slave. Joseph made the best of his situation by acting with the character one would hope to have as one belonging to the creator. But none of this prevented him from being wrongly accused and sent to prison. Joseph, in prison, chose to conduct himself with the highest standard of integrity. He helped other prisoners who may or may not have been guilty themselves of their crimes by interpreting their dreams and giving God all the credit. None of this helped him in the moment, and he was still forgotten by the person who promised to speak up for him at least for a time. Joseph belonged to God, gave credit to God, had faith in God, acted with the character and integrity one would expect from a citizen of God's kingdom, and for a long time, it did not benefit him in the way one would hope that kind of belonging should. Did Joseph ever wonder why? Did he ever cry out begging for answers? Did he ever ask what he had done to deserve such injustice? We can't know for sure. I would think that he probably did. I'm certain I would. How could he not? I wonder what Joseph would have thought of Paul's words in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 23. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is a hard group of verses for us as Christians because we don't always know what to do with it. We don't know how to parse this apart and apply it to our lives in satisfying ways consistently. If this is true, then what is the use of freedom of will that my belonging confers to me? Do I even have any? And here's the thing. This does not negate our free will. Our ability to choose freely isn't changed, but our agency and power isn't always as formidable as someone else's. If I choose while I am out hiking, as we do in Colorado, it is our tradition and our right, and if you don't like hiking, you're probably in the wrong state. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, unless it doesn't matter, in which case you can stay. We like you anyway. But let's say I'm out there, and the trail comes up, and it leads me to this big, rocky cliff face. Now, I could take the trail around and take the long way, hike all the way around to get to the top. Or, because I have the right to do so, through the sheer power of fisticuffs, blaze a hole through the center of that cliff face to get to the top. Now, I'm quite confident that cliff face will not know that I was there, will not notice that I made the attempt. My fists will recognize my stupidity, however. But let's say I hike around and I go up to the top of that cliff face, and I decide instead of walking back down, I'm just going to jump off the top. The cliff or the ground below is not going to recognize the finality of my decision. Won't even know that it happened. I can exercise my free will, I can make the choice, does not mean it's going to go the way I want it. That's the hard part of having free will. I have no power to succeed in those cases, but my freedom to choose as I saw fit still remained. But when that power acting as an obstacle is God, we ask, then what is the point of using my free will to make good choices and do right if God isn't going to bless it? You know, as if every time God exercises his free will, it's about me personally somehow. As if everything that happens to me is about me. Here's the problem. 
We still view our choice of behavior, our conduct, our character from a cost-benefit analysis point of view. Is what I'm doing going to benefit me? And if it's not, should I bother doing it? So, if doing the right thing is not going to benefit me, is it worth doing? Now, everyone in the room would say, absolutely, it's worth doing. Because we're Christians, it's the right thing to do. Have we always done it that way? Are we saying that none of us in this room have ever looked at that cost-benefit analysis and made the slightly less noble choice because we knew that it might not work out as well as we'd like? Maybe it wasn't because of what we said, but maybe it's because of what we didn't say and what we didn't do. I didn't do anything wrong, I just didn't act in the way that would have been the most right. We're always making that analysis. Which leads to this question, what is the point of being good when unjust things still happen to me? Or, what is the point of having faith in God does not answer my prayer or bless me? We say that, we believe that when we pray, when we put our petition to God, that he will hear us and he will respond. But we've all experienced that it does not always work that way, or at least not the way that we want it to. And I would argue, if the reward is the goal, then perhaps there isn't any point. If we're just looking for reward, if that is our purpose, then maybe there's no point. Because I would argue that the point is, the reward is not the point. We have used reward to motivate, and intentionally or not, made it the point. How do we teach lessons to students? How do we teach our children? How do we reward in the workplace? What motivates us in every area of life? Is it always because we love what we're doing or because we know that there's a reward at the end of it? It's ingrained within us. We either desire to do right because it's right or we've decided that our character is only as valuable as what it gets us. Exercising my freedom of will is only as valuable as the reason I have exercised it. Who I choose to be in any given moment without thought of personal benefit is the real victory. It's the true test of character that is free will. Can I be content in any situation knowing I use my freedom of will for the highest good even if my choices and actions do not end as well as I had hoped? And here is where we really struggle. We have confused being content in any situation with being content with every situation. Which puts us into a mindset that tells us we just have to live impotently with everything that happens to us because it's wrong to do otherwise, or we end up in a mindset that confuses contentment with complacency. I just have to do nothing and accept it. It's either because it's easier to do or I think that I can't do otherwise. I'm not allowed to try to change my circumstance. And we think it's an either-or scenario. 
Can I learn to be content when terrible things are happening and try to do something about it? But what if we could be content without having to be resigned to stay in the place where we're at? Joseph's character in every part of his life demonstrated that he could be content in all moments even as he was striving for better moments. This is because he was content and confident in who he was and knew that no matter what happened to him and around him, he would always be true to himself and to his belonging. Paul states it like this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And as we end, Paul's ability to be content like Joseph was directly related to his confidence in his citizenship and his belonging. He knew who he was and he knew who he belonged to. His identity was secure. Our choice of belonging and citizenship defines who we want to be, who we want to be. Not just for the future, but right here in the now and it leaves us with this final question. Who do we want to be now?